You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Everyone agrees that shame is a terrible feeling. So isn't it logical that we should avoid feeling shame? And doesn't that also mean that it's bad to make other people feel shame? Well, maybe not. In fact, in his new book, Defending Shame, Tali Lau shows not only that shame is a vital part of our moral psychology, but also that appeals to shame are one of the Apostle Paul's common ways to call his audience to repentance and holiness. I'm David Grubbs, your host for this episode of Christian Humanist Profiles, and with us today is Dr. Tali Lau, Associate Professor of New Testament at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School and author of Defending Shame, Its Formative Power and Paul's Letters, published by Baker Academic. Welcome to Christian Humanist Profiles, Dr. Lau. Well, thank you, David, uh, but please feel free to call me Tully. And then, like, the way that I tell my students who are not believers, my name is, uh, my name is like pronounced like Toledo, but it's actually like a doe, so Tully is fine. Tully, excellent. Well, welcome. I've been looking forward to this conversation. Pleasure is mine. So, the book is called Defending Shame, which is a, a uh-huh. risky thing in our culture today. Uh, That's right. So, what led you to this project, and what need in the church and culture do you see that it meets? Well, the project actually all began when I was asked to teach a class in global theology, and they wanted me to teach this class. It was basically just a one-session class, you know, and trying to teach it from an Asian context. And one of the key things, at least in an Asian context, is the sense of honor and shame. And so how does the theme of honor and shame actually uh, provide a lens for us, for example, for understanding Christian theology? And so as I began to teach this class, you know, I began to also see in terms of uh, our culture here that we are living, I think, in our current context here with a very, I think, a fractured or misunderstood uh, perception of shame. Typically, you know, uh, we generally want to avoid shame. We shame it's painful, shame it's uh, bad. We see a lot of entertainers talk about uh, the damage or the harm that, for example, body shaming occurs. We see, I think, the danger of shame, for example, in various Muslim countries, for example, honor killing, all right, in order to maintain the honor of uh, one's uh, family that sometimes siblings kill uh, their sub- other siblings there who may have dishonored the family. So we see this uh, destructive uh, impact of shame, you know, that we generally want to avoid shame. And even in academic circles, we tend to think that shame is bad, guilt is good, shame is primitive, it's a primitive precursor to guilt, and that uh, guilt should rather be the guiding emotion that really centers our moral life. At the same time, you know, this whole understanding of shame is detrimental to one's self-esteem. And so even on campuses, you know, we have want to create safe spaces which tend to protect uh, students from any negativity or there might be trigger warnings in classes. But at the same time, when we see that uh, this general propensity to try to avoid shame as much as possible, we see also 
different segments of society engaging in shame. The government engages in shame. For example, the Californian government would publish the names of those people who are delinquent in their property taxes on the website, primarily to shame them into paying their property taxes. We also see online shaming very much in social media. And especially in today's context in the pandemic itself, we see examples of uh, different people shaming others if they're not wearing masks. And I think that in the American context here, one of the things that I notice is that there is a conflation where we conflate shame and humiliation and we equate the two. But that conflation doesn't necessarily occur in other cultures. And in other cultures, uh, Shame is actually considered a virtue. For example, it might, it's something that's considered a virtuous thing in the Chinese context and the Chinese culture here. So that's this dissonance that I sense, you know. But at the same time, I think that we recognize that shame is somewhat fundamental to our moral character. After all, I don't think any of us would wish to be absolutely shameless. And if shame is to be a fundamental part in terms of who we are, then how do we reconfigure or how do we re recalibrate or how do we rehabilitate our understanding of shame? So I think that that's something that we see, I, that I see, you know, that it's needed in terms of our culture to have a, I think, a rehabilitated understanding of shame. And I think that within the church itself, uh, we read, for example, in the Old Testament, the prophets shaming Israel, or we even see in the New Testament, Paul shaming his readers. And sometimes given our cultural context where shame is so negative, we are not too sure what to do with it. Are these texts merely descriptive in terms of they're just describing what the prophets did and what Paul did, or are they also prescriptive for the church? And if they are prescriptive for the church, then how does the church engage in this? How does the church uh, rebuke, for example, its members? Or how does the church discipline its members? So I think that this whole issue, I think it's very pregnant uh, for our culture. It's very pregnant uh, also for our church. And I think it's vitally needed to have this discussion. Excellent. Well, one of the things that, the reader, uh, I think, needs to understand about the book, uh, I, which I encourage all of you listeners to to go read it for yourselves, uh, is that uh, it is primarily a work of exegesis, of setting a context in which exegesis can happen, and then of uh, putting that exegesis in conversation with the culture. So. I appreciate that Paul's epistles are the centerpiece of the book, but you begin with setting the context, the background uh, in the Greek culture and then in the Hebrew scriptures that, of course, you know, Paul draws from as, as his own sources. So let's consider the Greek culture first, if we may. Um, and you have many examples of yeah, uh, including, philosophers I'd <laughs> yeah, including philosophers I'd never heard of. <laughs> so let's talk about some ones that are more familiar. Uh, how okay. does Socrates use shame as a tactic and an argument? And what place does Aristotle give for shame in a moral education? Uh -huh. Right. 
I think that firstly, you know, uh, one of the things that I wanted to frame uh, Paul's argument primarily in light of his cultural milieu and within the Greco-Roman world and also in his Jewish world here. And so that's why I began with a lot of background material because if you want to rightly understand what Paul is doing, you also have to understand how his culture in which he is living in is really uh, reacting and also uh, dealing with this issue of shame here. Now, Socrates here, now Socrates is an interesting character because we don't really get, uh, have any direct writings from uh, Socrates, uh, from Socrates instead of certain terms of what Plato has written here. And Socrates uses shame here primarily when he is talking to his interlocutors and especially when his interlocutors, you know, their appetites, their pleasures, and their false beliefs are leading them astray from what Socrates considers to be the good life or the virtuous life. And so Socrates uses shame primarily to shock his readers or to shock his interlocutors into examining their own perception, their own world, uh, their own uh, value system, their own belief structure. And Socrates uses shame primarily because it is something that, now shame is painful. It's a potent force. It forces a person to confront their own position. It shakes them out of their complacency. And this shaking them out of their complacency, Socrates would consider to be the first step that is necessary towards recognizing their ignorance, you know, and which is the beginning of wisdom. So he wants to use shame primarily to move them away from the court of public opinion and to maybe replace it with a different court of opinion, which is that, you know, of a trusted moral philosopher. As, uh, or sometimes he uses that uh, to replace, use a shame to shock his readers or his interlocutors to replace it with the court of a divine judge. And I think that with Socrates, uh, I don't think that that is always his first, in terms of shame, that's not always his first go-to instrument. I think he uses that when rational arguments don't work. And he also uses it when the consequences of the person's belief structures are really bad, when it is particularly disastrous. And so he uses uh, shame primarily in terms of, as a kind of wake-up call to called his interlocutors to wake up from their stupor. Aristotle also builds on what Socrates has done. And Aristotle doesn't really talk specifically about the relationship between shame and moral formation, but Aristotle does talk a little bit about uh, the relationship between emotions and belief structures. So for Aristotle, he would he takes the cognitive understanding of emotions primarily with the sense that our belief structure forms the lens by which we interpret experiences, and this interpretation then gives rise to our emotions, whether the emotions be uh, anger, be in terms of jealousy or shame. So our belief structure gives rise to our emotions. But Aristotle, when he writes for example, on rhetoric, he says that our emotions influence our belief structure. So it is somewhat in terms of a, you could say it's a circular thing, in terms that our belief structure gives rise to our emotions, but emotions, when they are precipitated in us, for example, by 
an orator, it then can change our belief structure. And so for Aristotle, the reason he gives a primary importance to emotions, because for Aristotle, the moral life is not just about doing the right thing, but it's also about right feeling. So the moral life is not just about right doing, but it is also about right feeling. And that for Aristotle, a virtuous action is virtuous only if it is done in the way that a virtuous person would do it. So a virtuous action is not doing the right thing, but also doing the right thing the way that a virtuous person would do it. So for Aristotle, what then is the role of shame in the moral life? It's what's the role of shame in learning to be good? And for even the whole issue of how do we become virtuous? For Aristotle, it says it's by practice, by doing just acts, by doing virtuous acts. But then for Aristotle, he recognizes that doing virtuous acts, there are certain things that are prerequisites. For example, you must have certain knowledge, you must have certain motivation to do it. You must also have a certain stability and that it must arise from a stable disposition of a person's character. Now, someone who is a novice, you know, will not be able to do these virtuous actions virtuously. So for Aristotle then, you know, there must be something else that really motivates in terms of how does a learner who is not able to do virtuous actions virtuously, how does he then move to being able to do virtuous actions? And for, there's a step they, I think that scholars recognize that a learner is not able to do all of these things. But nonetheless, you know, that how then does the learner get to move from this position of novice to doing virtuous actions virtuously? And some have wanted to consider that actually shame is the semi-virtue for the learner. Shame is the semi-virtue for the learner in that it functions as a guide between blindly following a person's appetites and then acting from a stable, virtuous disposition. And that shame here then provides the motivation because in shame there's a true desire for what is truly noble. And that shame provides the cognitive element and that shame gives you some idea in terms of what is noble. And then shame also gives you the pleasure in doing what is noble and also it pains you when, uh, when you do something that is bad or when you do something that's evil. So scholars here, Aristotelian scholars would say that shame is this semi-virtue that really moves us towards good. Shame is not a virtue according to Aristotle because it's a passion, an emotion. And because it's an emotion, it's not as stable as a, as a virtue uh, would be. So for Aristotle, shame is the semi-virtue that really helps us and moves us towards doing good. I remember that's probably too much for you, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I, I really, I really appreciate the, the, the being able to anchor it in there because anchor it into especially the, the framework of uh, the Nicomachean ethics because uh, I, I teach the Nicomachean ethics. In, oh, wonderful. In a composition. Well, yeah, class, next at least, on this then. <laughs> yes, at least, at least sections of it. And uh -huh. uh, I always am having to present to my students uh, a section rather early on in which he's explaining uh, that what what defines 
cowardice and bravery is not an absence right. of fear, but fearing the correct uh -huh. things. And he gives right. the example of shame uh -huh. as one of the things That's to right. rightly fear. And I've always had difficulty helping my students enter the frame of that, that cultural frame of reference in which that uh -huh. is a sensible thing to say. Yeah. Because all of them have been acculturated to see shame as a thing um, to work past, <laughs> as, yeah. a, as a thing to rise above. So, yeah, this is this is actually directly, directly helpful and practical to me. Yeah. Uh, so th these are the sorts of things that I suppose that we could expect that when Paul's letter is read uh, to the Galatians or to the Corinthians or to the Ephesians, that they would have some some remnants of 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 ideas perhaps of their own of their own education or things that they just sort of assimilated from being in That's right. uh -huh. their milieu um, that they would have they would have known how to assimilate uh, right and and you know if I could interject to you know that uh, for them shame actually it's if you go all the way back to for example like the pre-Socratic philosophers like Protagoras you know that it's this whole understanding that shame or rather the word that he uses idols, the Greek word is idols, but translated as shame, modesty, sense of shame, that that was a virtue and that was a gift that was given by Zeus to humanity in order to enable humanity to live together. So shame and justice were the two gifts that were given by Zeus to humanity so that they would be able to live together in a community. Otherwise, uh, they would totally self-destruct. So the whole, I think the whole cultural backdrop has really wanted to consider shame, really, uh, shame slash modesty slash a sense of shame as something that is important, something that is valuable, and is fundamentally a virtue. That's important. Your discussion of shame in the Hebrew scriptures is equally important. I really appreciate the way that you work it through uh, not just the Pentateuch, but also into the uh, the rhetoric of the prophets. But I think Genesis, uh, your your work with settling into those first uh, few chapters of Genesis is so important. What is what does the beginning of Genesis, especially chapters two and three, teach us about shame and its role in the human uh -huh. being. Right. And I think that Genesis here is important because the first occurrence of shame really is in Genesis, specifically in terms of Genesis 3 here. And when we take a look at the account of uh, Adam and Eve in terms of eating the fruit that God forbids them to eat, the story you know, probably do know is that they eat of the, uh, of the fruit and then their eyes are open and then they recognize that they are naked and then they kind of sow fig leaves to cover themselves up and then they hide from God when God calls, uh, calls to them in the garden. And from the whole episode here, I think it tells us that firstly, that shame is a relational concept and that shame found, uh, you could say that it speaks of the alienation between parties here. Firstly, you know, that we see that shame, uh, that horizontal alienation between Adam and Eve in that they sow fig leaves to hide uh, their nakedness from one another. So there's this horizontal alienation. And then there's also this vertical alienation 
in that Adam and Eve both hide both hide from God when God calls them in the garden. So shame is a relational concept, and uh, we see that and we recognize that uh, even in today's context. But the Genesis account tells us that shame is the subjective expression or the subjective experience of guilt, of an objective guilt. And in the case of Genesis 2 or 3, Adam and Eve experience shame as a result, as a result of disobeying God's command. And disobeying God's command, ultimately, that means that they were guilty, all right, that they are in the state of guilt here. So shame is the experience, the subjective experience or the subjective expression of uh, this objective guilt in their disobedience to God's command. But this then, also because the Adam is considered to be the progenitor of all humanity, and if Adam is the progenitor of all humanity and all people sin, then sin is the necessary experience of humanity. And if I had said that shame is the subjective experience of guilt here, or sin, then shame becomes the necessary experience of all humanity because all humanity or everybody sin. And if everybody sins, then shame will then be the necessary experience of all of everybody. All right. But at the same time, you know, Christians always consider how the because of Adam's actions that it brings in the state of fallenness in terms of all creation. So that Adam's sin ushers in the state of fallenness for all humanity, for all creation, for all cosmos itself. Then I, it seems to suggest that non-moral shame, for example, shame uh, that is not the result of one's actions, but maybe the shame that is the result of somebody's actions. For example, the shame that uh, rape victim, for example, would experience, that shame, that non-moral shame, because it doesn't stem from her actions or his actions, that non-moral shame is then also a function of sin. It's a function of sin because we are living in a fallen world. So that non-moral shame then, I think it's, uh, it's telling us that in Genesis account, suggests that non-moral shame is then also a function of sin that it is a symptom of the sin of Adam, that because it is Adam's sin that brings in the state of fallenness in the entire created world. So that's one of it. But at the same time, you know, the Genesis account also tells us that it is only God who can adequately deal with humanity's shame. So Adam and Eve, they construct fig leaves for themselves, and they, it, the text actually says they're like skimpy loincloths, all right? But that is inadequate. So God provides clothes for them, and the word that uh, that's used there in the Hebrew, it really refers to long tunics. And it's the same word that is used in Genesis for the, mouth, for the long robe that Joseph wears, all right? So it's telling us that God is the only one that's able to provide and to adequately deal with their shame in this. And so it then suggests then that God is the only one that can adequately deal with humanity's shame. And if you want, if you want to take it that the providing of these clothes for them 
from animal skins and then it points to a sacrifice. Some would want to suggest then that the provision of these animal skins point to the sacrifice of Christ. And that ultimately, if we take it, if we take that route, then it is saying that the sacrifice of Christ is the only means by which humanity's shame can be adequately addressed. So I think that Genesis 2 and 3 then play a pivotal role in terms of trying to help us understand the biblical concept of shame, that shame must be understood from God's perspective, and that shame is a subjective expression of sin, of guilt. That's really excellent because I've always, I've, I've grown up in churches uh, and have known uh, the story of Adam and Eve and the fall, uh, but uh, the the focus has always been on guilt, on on sin as an infraction of law, on guilt right. uh-huh. and on legal consequence. Um, that additional level of of the experience of shame, of the attempt to the inadequate attempt to cover it, uh, and that God in covering shame is 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 in a sense um, restoring them uh, in a way to something something like the relationship that is severed by shame. That that's that's really uh, I, I I feel the importance that that would have had yeah, to me uh-huh. Uh-huh. if it had been part of my education from the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> well, the centerpiece of your book, as we've said, is your exegetical work in Paul's epistles, and you go into a great deal of detail, which is necessary in exegesis, but sort of hovering above it and looking at the uh, the outlines of the whole, what are some ways that Paul is using retrospective shame and prospective shame to move his readers towards repentance and right living? I think, I'm not so sure whether your readers, do you think that they would, uh, or your listeners, whether they would understand retrospective shame and prospective shame? Do I need to kind of explain that? Uh, yeah, let's let's be, let's begin with that, because those terms are really important, and you develop them in completely different ways. Well, I think that shame, you know, that it's uh, usually in terms of, uh, let me define shame, that shame is the sense of uh, the painful emotion that we arise because we believe that we have built a certain standard and that arises from an action, all right? That action could be something that is in the past. And so if the event that, the event that causes us to feel inadequate happened in the past and we are looking back towards the event in the past, then that would be in terms of uh, retrospective shame, retrospective in terms of looking back. But if, for example, I am envisioning an event that I have not done, but I know that if I do uh, that event, it will result in a painful sense of painful emotion, then that is prospective and that it is looking forward to a particular uh, bad event. So that would be a prospective shame. And Paul uses both this retrospective shame, prospective shame uh, in his letters. Now, this notion of retrospective and prospective shame is also recognized by Aristotle. So it's not something that new that Paul invented, but uh, Paul just uses it. And so retrospective shame, you know, that it, in light of the bad actions that we have 
uh, that somebody may have committed. But somebody, you know, that may not consider that event to be a bad event. And so they, in fact, they are rather proud of it. So in 1 Corinthians 5, when somebody in the church is sleeping with his father's, uh, father's wife, you know, basically his stepmother here, the church was instead proud of it rather than uh, to be grieved by it. And because the whole church was proud of it, you know, Paul basically shames them because they should have been ashamed in the first place. So by rebuking them, by shaming them, Paul is trying to get them to see the sin the way that he sees it. And that he's trying to get them to see the way, the sin, the way that he sees it and to force them or rather to admonish them and to move them towards repentance. And that this Paul, by doing this, you know, he's not just trying to make them do what Paul wants them to do, but that he's also trying to reconfigure their way of thinking, their value system, so that they are not just doing what Paul wants them to do, but they are doing what is the right thing to do. And that they are doing the right things, not only doing the right things, but they are doing it for the right reason. So Paul is, by shaming them, you know, he's trying to reconfigure their moral compass, their worldview, so that it aligns uh, with Christ, with the crucified Christ. So that is in terms of retrospective shame. For example, when the church has done something egregious and they are not repenting of it, then Paul shames them. So basically to wake them up from their stupor, very much like the way Socrates does, all right? To wake them up from their stupor and then to call them back to a set of right living. But in other times, you know, when things are going well in the church, Paul may not uh, shame them, but in, in that sense, but he might point them to, in terms of what it's considered to be honorable, teaching them what is considered to, what is, honorable, what is the right thing to do, so that they develop, uh, you could say, a sense of shame in that regard. And I think it's important here to remind ourselves that shame in the ancient world is sometimes equivalent to honor. Shame, if, for example, in Rome, shame is honor in the sense that you cannot attain honor without shame. You cannot attain honor if that it's something that you are ashamed of doing. That is something that's very explicit in the in the Roman world, in the in the Greek world here. That you cannot attain honor if they, if you have no boundaries, if you have no uh, set of behaviors or set of standards that really prohibits you from doing something that will bring dishonor. You would not gain honor itself. So here, Paul then at times teaches them in terms of what is honorable and to focus their minds in terms of that which is right, that which is lovely, to basically to develop a Christian mindset that really revolves around the crucified Messiah. And in, by doing that, Paul, it's, you could say that he is instigating or not instigating, but rather developing and, and inculcating a dispositional sense of shame in his readers that will then circumvent them from doing anything that would bring shame and dishonor to Christ, to God, to the church, 
to their brothers and sisters and also to themselves. So that he tried to, you could say, to reframe their mindset so that it is Christ-like, so that it really embodies the mind of Christ. That's a that's an excellent segue into another topic that I wanted to mm-hmm. uh, bring out, which is the role of Christ in Paul's use of shame, uh, especially the way that uh, Christ's humility and his suffering uh, reconfigure the the word that you've been using. They they reconfigure a Christian's understanding right. of honor and shame, right. especially uh-huh. in your exegesis of Philippians two. Right. You know, I think that before we do that, um, we have to really understand uh, the whole concept of salvation in terms of this honor and shame. And so I'm going to maybe talk a little bit about that first, and then I'll segue into the work of Christ. And uh, sin can be understood, you know, in guilt categories, uh, but it can also be understood in terms of honor and shame categories. And in Romans 1, it says that sin is fundamentally dishonoring God. Sin is idolatry in that we put ourselves first or put something else first rather than God. So sin is fundamentally dishonoring God. All right, so you get the sense of honor and shame there. And our sin then results in our shame in that we are exiled from God. We are separated from God. We are picked out of God's uh, presence. So our sin results in our shame because we are exiled from God's presence. Now, if sin results in shame, our justification then results in our glory. And our justification results in our glory in that we are declared right before God and that we are now able to enter into God's presence. And so here... If we are banished from, if sin results in a dishonoring and results in our being banished from God's presence and being exiled from his presence, then justification results in our honor in which we are then able to enter into the presence of God. Christ's death then is that sacrifice that takes our shame and our guilt on the cross. Christ's death is the sacrifice that takes our shame and our guilt on the cross. And this is very seen very clearly in terms of the cry of dereliction that, uh, that Christ utters in the Gospel of Mark. You know, when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when Christ utters that, you know, Christ is taking our shaming judgment of exile, exile from the presence of God on himself. So Christ takes our the shame of our exile on himself so that then we can approach God. And because of Christ's work, we are then adopted as sons and daughters of God. And if we are adopted as sons, then by golly, you know, we have the honor of being God's son. We have the honor that it's not because of anything that we've done, but we have the honor through Christ's death of having the honor of being part of God's family. It's just the whole like this, you know. If you were born into the royal family of England, man, you would have great honor just because of the fact that you are a member of the British royal family. Not because of anything that you've done, but because you were born into that family. And so similarly here, you know, because of Christ's work, when we are adopted as sons, 
and daughters here, we have this honor. This honor not because of anything that we've done, but this honor because of Christ. But because we are now in God's family, we have this privilege, but at the same time, we have this responsibility. This responsibility to live a cruciform life, a life that is self-giving, a life that honors God, a life that also honors others. And so that in terms of Christ then functions as a model in terms of how we are to live our lives in such a way that honors God, in such a way that loves God, and in such a way that loves others. So that Christ then becomes the, you could say, the role model in terms of how we are to live a life that honors God. Paul talks about it in Philippians, you know, that that's one thing that's really important to him, that is to live worthy of the gospel. And the life of Christ then is the model in terms of someone who has lived worthy of the gospel. So that the life of Christ then becomes the framework in terms of how we are to live our lives. And this means then that uh, we live our lives uh, not according to the opinions of the world, but fundamentally according to the opinions in terms of God. So that we need to construct an alternative court of opinion and that the values that truly define honor and shame, it's not generated by the world, but rather that God is the one whose opinion ultimately matters. And so the values that define honor and shame must be determined by God rather than by the world. And so we live in a manner worthy of the gospel, and we live in a manner that's worthy of the cross, because the cross inverts the paradigm of honor and shame. And I think I say that the cross inverts the paradigm of honor and shame because the cross was inherently shameful. It was inherently shameful in the Roman world. And the cross, the crucifixion, you know, that was the means of execution of death, that is reserved for the, for the scumbags. There was a reserve for the criminals, for slaves. Citizens were typically not crucified. They were executed by the blade. All right, so the cross, the crucifixion was really the most cruel and the most degrading form of punishment because the person who was hung there on the cross was usually hung there naked. And it was usually, the cross was then usually put in a place that is very public so that everybody who passes by, you know, on the highway would see that and it would then uh, warn everybody not to follow the example of this person who was crucified. But here, when Christ was resurrected, the cross then becomes the, not the symbol of honor, shame, but rather the symbol of honor, so that the values that truly define honor and shame is the cross, and that we now get honor if insofar as we identified, identify with the crucified Messiah. So I think that Christ's humility and suffering then reconfigures in terms of what is truly honorable and what is shameful. And that what is truly honorable and shameful is not what the world says it is, but rather the life and in terms of the mind of Christ that he has then exemplified and shown to us. That's excellent. Well, we have uh, we've been making good use of our time, and we've we've gotten to uh, the section of the book which 
you mentioned as as being really the the point where the, your project started uh, this mm -hmm. uh, this integration of a uh, a traditional Confucian school of thinking uh, at presenting that as a as a context for for dealing with the concepts of honor and shame. So, if you could just unpack a little bit of what uh, role shame plays in Confucian thought and related uh, schools of, of traditional Chinese thought and the ways that those uh, those treatments of shame harmonize with or diverge from Paul's uses uh, in ways that can help us read the Bible better. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. You know, uh, does Houston have a Chinatown, David? Yes, it does. It's, uh, it's actually have very, you... very close to our uh -huh. uh, campus, just okay. north of us. But, you know, uh, there's a Chinatown in uh, Chicago here, and usually before this Chinatown, there is this, uh, what, there's a gate that leads into the Chinatown. And uh, on the gate to this Chinatown here in Chicago and also the one in Boston, there are four letters that are written on this gate here. And these four letters represent the four cardinal virtues that actually precede uh, Confucius. And one of the virtues that is written on this gate here is shame. All right. So shame here, or shame, you have to understand in in Chinese and also in terms of Greek, it can be interpreted as sense of shame and also shame. So that shame here is a cardinal virtue within pre-Confucian thought. It was carried into Confucius thought, and it's now prevalent in most uh, Chinese thought here. And it's also very much prevalent in Chinese families. So that was the survey though, that uh, a child psychologist, a Taiwanese child psychologist was doing. And so she was asking, you know, various uh, Anglo-European American mothers, whether their two to three year olds understood the concept of shame. And when the survey was done, only 10% of Anglo-European American mothers said that their two to three year old child understood the concept of shame. Now, when it was asked of Chinese mothers, whether their two to three year old understood the concept of shame, 95% of Chinese mothers said that their two to three year olds understood it. And so that is within a Chinese culture, within Chinese families, itself, there's a hypercognition, a greater awareness of shame. And I think that this whole understanding of shame all goes back to Confucius itself, that for Confucius and even preceding Confucius too, shame is considered a virtue. But you have to understand, it is ethical shame that Confucius talks about. It is shame that is measured by ethical standards. So, for example, you should be ashamed if you're not trustworthy, if nobody trusts you. For Confucius, he's not really talking about conventional shame. For example, you should be ashamed. And in fact, he argues against conventional shame. So, for example, you should not be ashamed if you're wearing tattered clothes and standing beside someone who has a leather jacket. So you should not be ashamed of that, but rather you should be ashamed if you fail certain moral and fail certain ethical standards. 
And so for Confucius then, shame is fundamentally a virtue. Now Mencius also picks it up. Mencius is, the, you could say, is the second most important sage in Confucian thought after Confucius. Now Mencius recognizes, you know, that emotions play a fundamental role in moral formation. And so for Mencius, he says that it is important to cultivate this emotion of shame so that it can then lead to developing this virtue of righteousness. And so you can see here that I think that Chinese families are then picking up in terms of Mencius understanding of using shame as the emotion that is generative of virtue, the virtue in terms of knowing what is right and what is wrong to do. So Confucius, Mencius, so within all Confucian thought itself, shame is a virtue. The emotion of shame is necessary to be cultivated in the right way so that it can form a function as a moral compass that guides us in terms of what we should do and what we shouldn't do. Now, when we compare this Confucian thought with Paul, we see that there are certain similarities. For example, both you know, Confucian thought and Paul, they both recognize the importance of emotions in moral formation. They recognize that emotions play a role in terms of our moral formation. Both also emphasize the importance of cultivating a sense of shame. All right, so for Paul, it is cultivating a sense of shame that is very much based on the cruciform life of Christ. And for Confucius, you know, that it would be cultivating a sense of shame that is based in terms of his understanding of the way, the Tao. But there are also somewhat uh, slight differences here in that when you read uh, Confucius' thought here, he is all very gung-ho in terms of trying to develop this prospective shame, trying to develop this dispositional sense of shame. But he is very reticent in terms of employing retrospective shame, in terms of rebuking others when they have done wrong. You know, that he's very, I think, very hesitant to do so, although, you know, there might be times when he would do it, but he's generally more hesitant to do so. I think here, there's some of the reasons uh, of why Confucius is a little bit hesitant to use shame to rebuke others is that he understands the, you could say, the danger of the, how this shame could be, could then uh, I think, uh, result in fractured relationships. So in terms of the possibility of uh, breaking the relationship or breaking the, the any kind of harmony that might you might have. There's also this understanding that for Confucius, you know, that, that this moral formation is this joint effort between the teacher and student in that if the student doesn't have the prerequisite uh, moral foundation to do it, then there's nothing much that the teacher could do. But for Paul, you know, that he engages in this shaming rebuke here because he recognizes that the eternal destiny of his readers are at stake. So, for example, in Galatians, you know, he calls them, oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? And for Paul, the eternal destiny of his readers at the Galatians are at stake. And so that's why he pulls up all the stops in terms of trying to shake them out 
in order to get them on the right uh, way of thinking again. But at the same time, Paul also trusts in the power of the Holy Spirit. And he believes that God is the one at work in the individual. And so he relies on the power of the Holy Spirit. And that the way in terms for formation to happen is not just dependent only on his word, in terms of dependent only on Paul's words. It's not only dependent in terms of the shaming rebuke, but it is any way for there to be any kind of transformation must come from the power of the Holy Spirit. And so for Paul, there is this, uh, this sense that there is this cooperative work between the individual and God, and that God is the one that brings about this true transformation. Whereas for Confucius, it is really self-cultivation. There's no outside help. There's no divine help, at least in Confucius' thought. And that any possibility of cultivation must come from within, with possibly the instruction of your teacher. So there is this divergence there in terms of between Confucian and Pauline thought. But there are clearly things that are, I think that would be helpful in Confucian thought that helps us to, uh, to read Paul. As I was working through that particular section in the book, uh, one of the things that I kept thinking about was uh, the way that approaching uh, reading, especially the New Testament, uh, uh-huh. from that framework would highlight, uh, I, th- I think, maybe a different aspect of what, um, at least in uh, in an American evangelicalism, the well, fatherhood yeah. of God and I as a child uh-huh. of God is typically spoken of in terms of intimacy and caring mm-hmm. and those very sort of positive emotions. But if I right. also had a sense of the weight of filial uh-huh. piety. <laughs> right. Yeah. It, it's the whole thing is that filial piety means that we have to, you could say, uh, be obedient, be loyal to mm-hmm. our father, and and we must follow in the ways of the father. So it's, uh, yes, there's intimacy, you know, between, uh, between God, the father, and us. But at the same time, intimacy, not so much to the extent where there is no separation between us and God in terms mm-hmm. that he's the creator, we are created beings, and that we have a responsibility uh, in terms of obeying God. Yes. I, I, was, I, I kept remembering uh, the, the first epistle of Peter in which he reminds mm-hmm. his readers that you have as father the one who is the judge of the world. That's right. And uh, that that um, judicial aspect of fatherhood, I think, is something uh-huh. that, that we don't always focus on very much. <laughs> yeah. We, we like our daddies to be cuddly. <laughs> <laughs> but at the same time, you know, friendship uh, or the relationship between uh, children and father is really in terms of imitating the father. So that's why even Jesus, Simon, I don't know, be perfect, just as your heavenly father is perfect. And when Jesus asks, who are my mother and brothers and sisters? Those who hear God's word and does them, and those who hear God's word and do the will of God. So that sonship or being children of God is defined in terms of our relationship to God by uh, what we do, that we are imitating God. 
Oh, that's really excellent. Well, one of the ways that we show hospitality on Christian humanist profiles is by letting our guests have the last word. So as we close out this conversation, what would you have our listeners to consider? Wow. I, I think that whole notion here that um, the, recognize, the recognition here that uh, shame can be destructive. There's no doubt about it. Shame can be destructive, but it need not be so. And that shame in a American context can be rehabilitated. And when it is rehabilitated, it can then function as a tool by which the Holy Spirit can then use to mold us into the image of Christ. So that fundamentally we have to shift the court of opinion or rather the values that define honor and shame rather than it to be based upon what the world considers to be honorable or shameful we should then rather reframe it and to say that no rather it is god's standard of what is honorable and what is shameful and that should then be my court of opinion rather than the world's court of opinion. And when we take it in that framework, you know, that then I think we begin to realize that shame can then be functioned really as a useful tool which the Holy Spirit uses to mold us into the image of Christ. And when the I think when the categories or when the values that define honor and shame are calibrated according to God's standard, then shame functions as a conscience. Shame functions as a conscience, which then moves us, prods us to walk in a way that is worthy of a calling as children of God. That's so helpful. Well, I've really appreciated you coming on to Christian Humanist Profiles, uh, Tilly, and I've really enjoyed our conversation. Well, the pleasure is mine, David. Well, dear listeners, I hope that you have enjoyed this conversation as well. We've been speaking with Tali Lau, author of Defending Shame, Its Formative Power in Paul's Letters, published by Baker Academic. There will be a link to that publisher's webpage for the book in the show notes when those post. The show notes can be found at christianhumanist.org. That's our blog. If you'd like to leave feedback on this episode, you can post them in the comments on the show notes. You can also send us emails directly to thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook, and we're on Twitter at CH Radio Network. In the meanwhile, I'm David Grubbs, wishing you all grand weeks. Christian Humanist Profiles is a show on the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. And our editor is Britt Stack. Be listening to the, for the next Christian Humanist Profiles.